0: Shakespeare must be heard, not read. It's a common enough refrain, spoken by scholars and fans alike, and for good reason. Stage dramas were printed and sold for at-home reading in the 16th and 17th century, but the primary intention behind the creation of these works was always for them to be performed, to be listened to, to be experienced. So the saying goes, everyone can have access to the words of Shakespeare, but only the truly gifted among us can make them come alive on the stage and screen. This is what Shakespearean performers do. Now, our thesis for this podcast has always been that Shakespeare is for everyone, so you may be wondering how we could be suggesting, here and in previous episodes, that the plays aren't truly accessible unless you have that intermediary, a performer, to translate it, give it meaning, make it make sense. The question of access is indeed an important one, and a political one, because there are significant barriers to access. Theater ticket prices are often too high for many to afford, so it can be hard for students, for example, or those on fixed incomes to participate fully. This is partly because of the high culture status of quote-unquote the theater, which perpetuates itself through the increasingly unaffordable cost of entry, but also because of the criminal underfunding of our arts institutions, who must now pass on the costs of running festivals and theater spaces to theatergoers in the face of decreased government funding. There are issues of age, gender, and racial equality as well. With so few roles explicitly written for senior citizens, for example, or people of color, or non-males, it can often feel like there is no room for so many of us to be represented or accepted within the world of Shakespeare. This can lead to disengagement, or reinforcement of the idea that Shakespeare belongs to only a certain type of audience. Theaters have tried to grapple with this by putting on age, race, and gender-blind productions, but there's certainly a long way to go. These might seem like strikes against our thesis. If understanding Shakespeare requires one to experience it, and the act of experiencing it is not something to which everyone can have equal access, then can Shakespeare truly be universal? Well, that's something we're discovering and learning about every day. Shakespeare is translated literally into languages all over the world to be performed for audiences, some of whom don't speak a word of English. These audiences now have access to a whole world of literature they otherwise might not have had access to. And that's pretty cool. YouTube and some streaming services like Spotify, for example, offer audio recordings of Shakespearean plays that, unlike audiobooks, feature actors performing these plays in the flesh, reacting to other actors on stage with them. So instead of simply reading the lines off the page, the play is performed for us to listen to. And that's also pretty cool. Then there's the recent novel coronavirus pandemic, which forced theater closures around the world. Shakespeare festivals and Shakespearean theaters made their performances available online for free in order to combat the sudden imposition of social and physical distancing public health efforts, which meant that we could sit on our sofas and our pajamas and watch productions on stage at the Globe in London or a Stratford festival in Ontario. All we needed was an internet connection. So yes, it isn't perfect, and there is a lot of work left to do when it comes to making Shakespeare, to making art of any kind, accessible to the widest possible number of people. But things are changing. The sociocultural and political and economic and epidemiological upheaval of the past few years will inevitably alter the way we interact with Shakespeare in the decades to come, and so it goes with everything. There are always multitudes, ready in the wings to transform our culture in various ways. Politicians, sociologists, economists, psychologists, doctors, medical officers. If all the world's the stage, then it's also true that they all have their parts to play their exits and their entrances but when it comes to the dramatic arts themselves specifically i can't imagine a group of people better equipped to come up with and navigate and deliver these changes than the performers themselves and sure that sounds a bit lofty and maybe unreasonable to suggest but after the conversation we had on our podcast today we are more convinced of this than ever it will be performers who will reimagine these plays to make them more inclusive It will be performers who imbue their characters with the necessary weight that allows them to take on the hue and timbre of our tumultuous recent history, so that we can see ourselves reflected in the political upheaval of Richard III, the interpersonal tragedy of Othello, or the gender fluidity of Twelfth Night. It will be performers who put their careers and paychecks on the line for half-full opening night houses, with plexiglass between the seats and every second row left empty. We were lucky enough to be joined by a panel of Shakespearean actors who proved that the act of performing Shakespeare is a living, breathing art. While we didn't dive into these exact social and political topics in our conversation, we did learn more than a few things about what it takes to perform Shakespeare in this day and age. The questions our panelists asked, the thought they gave to the answers, and the direction in which they take their art when the house lights go down are proof positive to us that they are exactly the kind of people who can lead the charge into whatever new world awaits us. And what a world it will be. Fasten your seatbelts, beautiful people. We're performing Shakespeare.
1: Since brevity is the soul of wit,
2: more of your conversation
3: would infect my brain.
0: Romeo? Wherefore art
3: thou, Romeo? To speak of him as my
4: kinsman, he's a most notable coward, an infinite and endless liar, an hourly promise-breaker, the owner of no one good quality, worthy your lordship's entertained. I'd beat thee, but I should infect my hand! The lady doth protest too much,
0: methinks.
3: The course of true love never did run smooth. I'm Lindsay. And I'm Aiden.
0: And together we are the Bix. And we are here today with an illustrious Shakespeare panel of actors and performers. And uh, and we're just so thrilled to be able to have uh, so many people interested in talking about Shakespeare. This is something that we are not good at. We are not uh, performers of Shakespeare, so we needed to open it up to the experts. Um, let's go around the table real quick and everybody introduce yourselves. We'll start with Hillary.
4: Hi, my name is Hilary Weintraub, and I've been doing classical theater consistently for the past five years.
0: Wonderful. Jen? I, I'm the, the
5: uh, novice, I guess, in this case, but I've been doing theater since I was a kid, but lately it was just been only in community atmosphere, but I've uh, performed Shakespeare a handful of times and was in a Shakespearean improv troupe called the... Uh, the Bard Monty. And,
0: uh, yeah, so <laughs> cool. That's great. And last but not least, Dakin.
2: Uh, hi, this is Dakin Matthews. Uh, I've been performing Shakespeare for 58 years and, uh, and I've been te- I've been teaching Shakespeare, uh, both uh, at the university level and as a professional, uh, coach in conservatories for about 50 years and uh i have uh, run a shakespeare festival before so and i've written quite a bit about shakespeare
0: oh this is going to be great that's that's quite the quite the experience my goodness yeah um so yeah thank you all for 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 joining us today and for giving us a little bit of background about your experience and your um acting experience and Shakespearean uh, knowledge Uh, is Shakespeare something that for for each of you is something that you always wanted to do in your acting careers or it it just seems like it's the kind of the thing everybody aspires to be a Shakespearean actor is that something that you felt too or was it something you just kind of fell into or, or what's your experience with Shakespeare been like
4: well I definitely sought it out Um, I remember being given the collected works of Shakespeare by my great uncle when I was 15. Mm -hmm. And uh, luckily, very early on, someone told me that Shakespeare really isn't meant to be read. It's meant Mm -hmm. to be heard and seen. And so when I pursued an acting career, I really felt like it was the thing that I wanted to do the most. Um, So when uh, after many years and different career paths, when I circled back on acting five years ago, the first audition that I went for was for a role in Much Ado About Nothing, because that was what was currently playing. And I just thought, if I'm going to do it, this is what I want to do. Absolutely.
0: Wonderful.
2: Uh, I kind of stumbled into it. Okay. Um, I didn't study uh, Shakespeare originally. I was a philosophy major in college, and after that, a theology major. Okay. Post grad, uh, but we had a very active uh, drama league, drama club mm. at the universities where I went, and I did plays, but it was never going to be my profession. And uh, I w- I began my teaching profession at about twenty four, I think. And one of my colleagues mo- mentioned to me that a that a local Shakespeare festival was rehearsing or was auditioning. For Henry IV, Part One. Okay. And he said, uh, "Well, you said you did that in college. Why don't you go audition for this?" And I thought, "Well, no, I'm, I'm not an actor. I don't do that." But uh, <laughs> he sort of dared me to do it, so I did. Uh, I had never auditioned for anything before in my life, and I got hired to, to do the that summer. And I thought, "Well, this will be good. I'll be, uh, I'll be learning more about Shakespeare." in the summertime so I can teach it better at the university. And, uh, I ended up acting every summer for about six summers while I was teaching at the university. And then after about, after that time, um, some theaters began to ask, offer me work during the year, during the academic year. Right. So I went to my chairman and I said, and I had a very good department. They thought that, that my professional work counted as much as publishing, uh-huh. which was pretty, pretty good. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And I uh, went to my chairman and I said, I'm getting a lot of offers to work during the academic year. <laughs> How about if I take all the eight o'clock classes five days a week? And uh, and he and the rest of the faculty thought that was great. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, for 20 years about, I taught from 8 to 12, rehearsed from 1 to 5, performed from 8 to 11, and then started oh all over again. Wow. You were living and breathing
0: Shakespeare. Shakespeare. Yeah. <laughs> and a lot, of was, a
2: lot of it was Shakespeare because Shakespeare was my specialty. Right. Uh, one of my specialties as a professor.
1: Okay.
2: So they sort of fed one another for 20 years, and then I retired from teaching about tw- about 30 years ago.
5: Okay. And, but I've been
2: wow. teaching just Shakespeare in acting since then.
5: That's wow. incredible.
3: Wow. That's really wonderful.
5: Good. What about you, Jen? Um, it's funny. As a kid, I remember uh, seeing the complete works of William Shakespeare as a book, you know, in the library or whatnot, and just kind of being intrigued, hearing stories and learning about him in school. But it wasn't until high school we did the Scottish Tragedy, which... Mm-hmm. I, I, believe it or not I wasn't on stage as an actor I was actually the uh the makeup director which okay I, at the time I think was more fun for me even though I was used to being on stage I was intimidated to uh to audition to even audition to be in the show because I was like I-, I can't do Shakespeare it was because I was always the ingenue or the comedic effect and I'm like I'm out of my element here so I ended up um doing makeup for the show but Listening to the words, because at one point when Banquo comes at the head of the table, um, I was hiding underneath a lift because it was a quick makeup change. So the actor would come through the stage. I'd slather his face with all sorts of gross stuff, stick blood capsules in his mouth, and he would shoot back up. So for the entire scene but prior to that before, I would have to be, you know, underneath, like just kind of in place, waiting for him to come down into the trap. Yeah but listening to my, you know, my fellow peers and perform, I'm like, maybe I shouldn't be as intimidated as I thought. So it wasn't until, um, God, how many years ago now? Let's see. 20, probably about 20 years ago. I, um, I, I auditioned for a community theater production of a Midsummer Night's Dream. And Mm. I've always wanted to play puck. That was, that was my Shakespearean role that after reading and, you know, seeing shows, that was the role that I thought I could most embody because it was a role that could be either male or female because it was such it was such a, you know, effervescent fairy sprite type character. So, um I auditioned and I got the understudy, which was fine with me because the woman who ended up getting Puck was amazing. Mm. Um but I got to be in the show as the fairy that is opposite Puck in the first monologue that that he has on, he she has on stage. Yeah. And so it was neat to be able to still embody sort of a sprightly character, but still be part of that, you know, iconic role in per se. Yeah, I did get to perform it. Finally, she had moved to New York and wanted to pursue becoming an actress. And we were chosen to compete in the Connecticut Dramatics Association. And we we took Midsummers. We my friend Bill is a Shakespearean. I, I like to call him Shakespearean like tweaker. He takes <laughs> Shakespeare and kind of can, can condense it down into an hour and not lose some of the let's okay. of Shakespeare. So he's done it with quite a few shows for us um, here in Connecticut. But he did it for Midsummer, so we could perform because you had to come in under an hour. So yeah. um, so I was able to perform on stage, and then we went to um, regionals, yeah. where we like to say we got pucked because. Um, <laughs> The show was great everybody loved it it was great and then night mother came up and beat us with two people so we oh, always wow. laughed it. it was like people are like i don't understand that wasn't as good a product well you know shakespeare night mother you know you can't really compare it but so wow. so i actually got to play my iconic role which to this day it's still one of my favorite roles that i've ever played
0: oh that's so great
3: that's awesome that's, awesome. Yeah. that's yeah that's really cool um our next kind of question is about how you generally get ready for a Shakespearean role. So, so what goes into preparing uh, for a Shakespeare uh, character generally, and how how is it different from uh, roles in other types of uh, plays, uh, especially for the stage? Like, is there a different approach that you take when you're uh, when you're preparing to go into the the more complicated language of Shakespeare? Is there anything else that you do when you're interpreting the characters or anything like that? Um, Hillary, if you wanted to start off again for us, that'd be great.
4: Yeah, sure. Um, I I I approach my script whether I'm doing Shakespeare or not uh similarly in that I get very involved in the text. So it doesn't matter if it's Shakespeare or not. That being said, when it is Shakespeare, like most actors or writers, he wanted to be a director as well. Mm. And Mm -hmm. (laughs) you can tell that by how he has written, um, where there are semicolons, where are there lists that are building. He is giving cues inside his text on choices that he wants his actors to make. Ah. So longer sentences generally means I should speed up, right? It's something that you're trying to get through. If it's, if it's a monosyllabic word, it usually means that there's a stress. You know, it's something that needs weight. To give it a give it a real punch. Um, he, he gives you lots of lists, right? So you have to build those lists. You can't just like run through them. Each one right. builds up and and then things start to make more sense. That and certain words like I always circle my buts and my yets and my now's, okay. you know, because It gives you a chance to to change course, change your action, and uh, the best of his words are when he uses the word all, because Mm -hmm. he doesn't do it very often, Mm -hmm. and when he does it, he really means it. It's not Mm -hmm. half, it's not some, it's all. And when even I just played Ophelia, not Ophelia, excuse me, Amelia in Othello. And she has a line where it's all 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 she says three alls in a row, yes, and being on stage and saying it and meaning it mm-hmm. it's it's the whole world, mm-hmm. you know so so really getting into the text, finding your meter, finding where yeah. the cesarees are, where those punctuation breaks are mm-hmm. um absolutely informs all of the choices that I make okay, cool. great,
0: yeah, yeah.
3: Okay. <laughs> D- it or would you... Uh,
2: well, of- I, I, I guess um, I'd have to think over the course of my career. I've had, I've had different ways of approaching when I was very young and not an actor at all. Uh, I, I didn't know what I was doing most of the time. But I, I grew up in, a, uh, in the San Francisco Bay Area where there were a lot of theaters and a lot of... Uh, uh, theater, uh, good good actors and theater traditions, And uh, I learned almost the way they, they did before there were conservatories in the British system mm. by apprenticing. You learn okay. by by listening to the senior actors in the company and, mm. and listening to how they do it. And you sort of do it by imitation for a while, I think. You, okay. you heard the one, you listened to the ones that you liked. You listen to the ones that seemed to make sense. And you thought, I think that's the way I'll do it. And then okay. simultaneously, of course, I was studying it formally. Yeah. Um, my specialty is uh, Shakespeare's verse techniques. So mm-hmm. I was also studying it formally, but trying not to make my my speech sound academic, but always to try to make it sound real. I think that as a, as a, as you want to make it second nature,
1: you mm-hmm. want
2: to make mm-hmm. it sound like Shakespeare is your native tongue. Mm. Yeah. So you don't want, anybody to say that sounds pretty, but it doesn't sound like somebody's actually talking to somebody else. So I always uh, drive for um, absolute clarity of meaning Mm -hmm. and absolute naturalness of speech. And that means you have to, uh, for me, you have to be, um, you have to understand how the verse works, but realize that your, your first task as an actor is not to try to speak the verse, but to speak the language and assume that Shakespeare's built into it the effects that he wants the verse to have. So oh, okay. like, uh, as, as the previous speaker said, I, I first of all, look at it, look at the text and study the text and read it, read everybody's parts, read my own mm-hmm. part,
1: mm-hmm.
2: Um, try to make absolute specific sense of everything that's being said. I don't stop if I think, well, I sort of understand that. I don't, I don't want to ever sort of understand anything. I want to right. absolutely understand everything that's being said, both in terms of the character's own consciousness of what he says and perhaps the actor's consciousness of things that are outside the character's knowledge, you know? Right. Some of the things the character can't admit to himself or doesn't know about himself. And then I just try to speak as, as naturally as possible, I guess okay. would be the answer to that yeah. question.
0: Yeah. Okay. That's Hillary, you, you've you got your hand up. Do you want to jump in here?
4: Yeah, well, I just wanted to agree 100% with what Dakin is saying. I, I, I think it's also a good reminder that people people get hung up on Shakespeare's language, that it's somehow like uh, words we don't understand and overly sophisticated or what have you. Right. And yet his audience, for the most part, was entirely illiterate. Mm. Mm-hmm. And they understood him. Mm-hmm. Why? Because the actors who were conveying it understood what they were saying. Right. And so what Dakin is saying is hundred percent right. There's I've never once been in a performance where I didn't know every word. If I have to go and look it up, um, yeah. you used to have dramaturges available, now you have Google. Like there's right. no there's no excuse to 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 speak without knowing what it is that you're saying. Yeah. So if, if the groundlings in the 16th century could understand these words, there's no excuse for any actor who's working on it not to. So mm-hmm. it, it's, uh, I, think, I think Dakin's point is 100% right. You have to be familiar with what you're saying so that you can convey it in a natural way. Th- these are universal stories right. that ought to be understood by anybody who, who it's presented to.
0: It sounds like a huge responsibility as a, as an actor. Like it's something that, yeah. you know, not being a performer myself, Aiden, you probably feel the same way. It's like, you don't think about that, but Oh my God, you're no. right. Like <laughs> You have to, you have to understand and know what you're saying. And that's why it, that's why it is so much easier to understand Shakespeare in my experience, watching it as opposed to just simply reading it. Right. So. 100%. Yeah. It was never meant yeah. to
4: be read the people yeah. who experienced it couldn't read. Yeah,
0: yeah. Right. Exactly.
5: Yeah. If I could jump yeah. in, it's, it's the tone. Yeah. It's, it's, it's when you, when you like when I was preparing for the role and then other roles that I, I did have, I played Beatrice in a scene and, uh, um, also even with the, uh, with the troupe that we did, I mean, even though it was improv, you still had to. We had to come across as genuine because we were really trying to honor Shakespeare, and and of course. a lot of his. How do I put this? It's a feeling. It's like when I would read to, to, to read the show. When, I'll give you an example for Midsummer's. Like I would read. The, I read the whole show, and then I went back, and then I looked at at Puck's lines, and it was. Who you were in the scene with and how you were reacting to that person, that that helped the language. It kind of because it, it needed as the as Hillary and Dakin both said, it's a flow. It goes, mm-hmm. but you had to portray it honestly. And to do that, right. you need to you need to really feel it. It's not, it, you know, the mm-hmm. words. Yeah, sometimes and I and I was against actors where it was more sing songy. And I tried not to do that because that's how you could tell somebody who's reading it and sort of gets it, but doesn't fully understand it. Gotcha. Because okay. that's not how I—I sh- sh- I don't think that's how Shakespeare wanted it done. He wanted it done as as you know as a performance and as a as 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 a telling kind of thing. So I think yeah. you know, the thing between a different role and Shakespeare, I think what happens is, you know, like when you when when I would rehearse you would rehearse kind of out of your head. <laughs> you know what I mean like but when you're up, when you're preparing for a role where the character is a certain way or a certain tone or a certain accent or a certain thing, you have to get more internal with your head. Whereas Shakespeare you have to be more external if that makes sense. Okay. Hmm. Okay.
2: Okay. <laughs> I, I, I would I, I would add to that that you have to somehow when you're studying for a role, you have to prepare very well, but yet you can't over prepare, right? Mm. Because sometimes you'll only understand the real meaning of what you're saying when you say it. when you get into the scene with the other actors. Exactly, you have to, you know, you have to know your words clearly. You have to know your meanings, but sometimes your intentions don't become clear until the obstacle appears in the scene with you you know what I mean so I don't like to get off book too early because (laughs) the trouble with getting off book too early is you set your rhythms and your melodies and you haven't set them according to what you're being given by the other actor exactly so I like to I I like to stay on book uh, say say after a week of table work Mm. I like to stay on with the book in my hand for at least another week while we rehearse each scene so that I don't set my, 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 my melodies or my intentions in concrete until I find out. Cause I, you never always know, know exactly what the scene is about until you play it a few times.
0: Exactly. Right.
2: Mm-hmm. So you want to be flexible enough to be able to adapt your, your speeches to what you're being given by the other characters. It, it, it's a, I I love rehearsing Shakespeare. That's (laughs) yeah, it is a lot of fun. I like performing it, of course, but (laughs) I love rehearsing it because that's where you. That's why I was so I was so uh, uh, blessed to have this second career as a Shakespearean actor Hmm. because I understood the plays from the inside out that most scholars never get into. They can't, you know, if you don't live inside the plays, there's things about them you just don't know in your bones right so i was very fortunate i thought
5: right absolutely you said what i meant so much clearer taken thank you
2: <laughs> life but a walking shadow a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more it is a tale told by an idiot it's full of sound and fury signifying nothing
0: Moving, moving on. I just wanted to. Maybe we've already kind of touched on this, but just to be uh, give you the opportunity to answer it more um, directly, what is the most difficult thing about performing Shakespeare, in your opinion? Um, is it the language? Is it uh, you know? I, I I don't know. Maybe interpreting your character in a in a certain way is harder with Shakespeare because they are so much older and people expect certain things and I'm not sure. I just wanted to open that up to you, to you all. Like what is the most difficult thing about performing Shakespeare?
4: Hmm. That that's interesting. I, I don't find it to be more difficult as far as, um, well, I guess I'll say this. After you have done a Shakespearean role, mm-hmm. and then you pick up a contemporary piece, mm-hmm. the amount of time and energy it takes to put that, those words and that script into your head is about 25%.
0: Really? Mm.
4: It, it takes a great deal more time and energy. Um, I think mostly for me, because with Shakespeare, there is no way you can perform without being word perfect. Right. Okay. There's no room to ad lib. Right. There's no room to improvise. Um, I, I mean, obviously, a director can give you space to do that. Yeah. But when you're when you're learning your lines, when you're developing your character, the intensity and the specificity that goes into absorbing the text and absorbing your character is greater, simply because the words demand more attention. Mm. Um, I personally revel in that. <laughs>
1: okay.
4: I, I don't find it difficult per se. Okay. Um, I find it extremely enjoyable, um, and yet there is no question that it, it is far more of a time commitment than a contemporary uh, script is. Okay. Okay.
2: Yeah, I, I I agree. I think the hardest thing uh, for me is not so much learning the words, though you do have to learn them. Right. I, I've, I've been blessed with a really good memory, so I, I don't have problems in that way. The difficulty is that the, the American theatrical system is primarily based on naturalism to a certain extent. And therefore, when we read a naturalistic piece in American theater or even in the British naturalistic theater, the, the language feels completely comfortable to us. It is, it is our the language that we speak. Right, it is late modern English and all of its slanginess and all of its, mm. its simplicity and its more directness. The language of early modern English, and God knows, early modern English poetry,
0: mm-hmm.
2: is simply not that. Right. Yeah. It's uh, especially for the stage. It's a much more elaborate, a rhetorically based language. And when they spoke in this language, it seemed to them natural. Right. For us it doesn't seem natural yeah so our uh you have to sort of really take the language apart and and uh and know the know that the that the verse choices, the poetry choices, the rhetorical choices, the word choices as strange as they may sound to us they they were are meant to sound natural when we finally put them out of our mouths. So mm-hmm. finding exactly the right melody as I sometimes call finding exactly yeah. the right cadence mm-hmm. so that that language still comes out as if a human being spoke it naturally is the hardest part. Cause the temptation is always to get a little stentorian with it sure. or to get a little artificial with it mm-hmm. or to imitate English sounds, you know, British yeah. sounds with it. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, it's, it's tough. That's the hard mm-hmm. part. Make it, okay. make it, Make it your own. Making it your own. We oh. never speak in wrong melodies, or give wrong stresses, or have wrong cadences when we speak our own minds. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. only when somebody else gives us words to speak yeah. that we have difficulty knowing how to say them out loud. So it's the the, the task of internalizing
1: mm-hmm. the
2: language so that when it comes out, it feels like it comes out from us and right. not from a page. That's the hardest right. thing, I think.
0: Oh yeah, that mm-hmm. makes total sense yeah, I
5: agree with. Both, I with what, yeah, I agree with both what Hillary and Dakin said. it's it's you know, I've worked with some actors that they they try to put that Shakespearean to use that word, you know, into the lines. but it's it's, mm. and I think people find that difficult because they think in their minds they think Shakespeare has to be done a certain way or that's what they're used to. so they they feel they need to perform the role a certain way. And so yeah. I think I think for some that's the most difficult, you know, I approached it as anything else. So, you know, I made sure, like, as Dakin said, the melody was correct, but I, I yeah. still wanted it to come from a natural place of how I, you know, I understood and how I spoke it. Um, I think the other thing is when when you when it's a physical role, because there's a lot of Shakespeare, you know, roles that are depending on the director and what what their vision is you know some of them can be more physical and it's taking the physicality Mm -hmm. of like let's say the fight between beatrice and benedict i -hmm. got to perform and it had choreography done to it with with a with a rapier and and a dagger and it was taking the lines and making sure they were still natural they were still put forth as the kind of you know pitchy argument that it really was but still have that that choreography that went hand in hand I wanted it to be a dance and a song but I didn't want it to sound like that do you know what I mean like I wanted it to appear Mm -hmm. natural and like how Shakespeare envisioned it but at the same time wanted to put we put our touch on it because it could be done that way Absolutely. You know. yeah. Cause he's got the greatest. Shakespeare has the greatest comebacks and the greatest like <laughs> insults I've ever heard. Yeah. You know what I mean? So it's like, you want to make sure that those are pitch perfect. Yes.
3: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It sounds like there's like, uh, it's almost like a translation, uh, Service, you know, it's it's like yeah. you've taken this original text, uh, and you're 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 manipulating it in in such a way that it, it comes across as natural to an audience for which mm-hmm. the language itself is completely unnatural. So that's that's just incredible. That's it's amazing to hear you guys talk about it. Um, mm-hmm. uh, our, our next question's uh, a, a bit of a, a turn. Uh, it's it's focused more about um, how the audience reacts. So so do you notice a, a difference uh, in 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 either the makeup of the audience or the audience reaction or uh, just, just any other uh, elements of the audience. Uh, Do you notice any differences between a Shakespearean production and uh, contemporary uh, play?
4: That's, that's an interesting question. Um, I think for the most part, uh, the art, Mm. When I perform Shakespeare, I think the people in the audience specifically want to see Shakespeare. Sure. Yeah, they didn't stumble upon it. It wasn't just what was playing in the local community theater house. Right. Um, especially for me in Los Angeles, where there are a myriad of options. Yeah, um, the, the audience that I was performing to generally wants it, and so they're trying to tune their ears in. They're right. they're it, it is more work for an audience member. They can't just lay back and like tune into every other word or kind of catch mm-hmm. up later. Yeah um, they have to they have to be an, an actively listening audience.
0: right. Mm-hmm.
4: So I think that there is a measure of that where I'm grateful that people who come to see our shows want to be there right. That being said, I also, I I performed Romeo and Juliet to a auditorium of ninth graders. (laughs) And you would think that they would not be the most active listeners. But let me tell you, when that scene between Romeo and Mercutio starts getting naughty in the street and they're going over their naughty talk, believe me, they all got it. Yeah. You know, so it's, it's, I think... um, a question of, is an audience ready to hear it? Okay. Mm -hmm. Right. If they're, if they want to be there, if they're going to tune in, then I don't think that there's any kind of challenge with connecting with a particular audience, but you know, somebody who got dragged to the theater and is sort of like half paying attention, then no, you, you can't communicate with, with that type of audience you have to be an active listener. It is, it's, 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 it's a, it's a higher Degree of attendance,
0: okay,
4: for an
3: audience. So, does that pose like a challenge, a particular challenge at times? Like, is there are there nights where you've Uh, been out there and you see the audience maybe not listening quite as actively as you'd like?
4: Um, you know, not really. I I suppose there are nights you know people are a little like Friday nights in Los Angeles, everybody's been working all week. Mm-hmm. You know, someone might, they, it's like they agreed to go and now they're there and it's like, oh man. <laughs> you know, they may be a little quieter than you'd like sometimes, like you're looking for a little more of a response. Mm. But I I just really believe in the power of the work itself. Uh, mm. uh, one of the reasons why I do Shakespeare, why I do Greek tragedy is because these are stories that we have been telling for centuries and millennia and the reason mm-hmm. why we do that is because the messages are universal mm. so i i just think that for the most part people get it i try not to worry about it and i try to really just stay in the circumstances of my character
1: mm-hmm.
5: Mm-hmm. If Jen-
2: jennifer why don't you go
5: Definitely. <laughs> okay yeah, go ahead, no i think i think i think hillary's right i think that most most audiences that i've been in and when i've been on stage and have come they come to see shakespeare and i don't i don't Mm -hmm. necessarily think that there's different audiences i think it's people who love theater love theater and they're going to go see everything and anything they can Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. so but i do notice that usually there's quite a few shakespearean lovers that always go to the, the same performances or more than once or um yeah, I mean, because there's a lot of Shakespeare on the East Coast, and and I tend to try to you know soak up the most I can because I do love it. But yeah. um, I yeah, I don't I don't a theater audience is a theater audience. I think a true theater lover will go it, it, to see anything and everything. So I I, mm-hmm. I haven't noticed a difference. Um, <laughs> yeah, I th- me personally, I mean, it de- Well, it depends too because. When we did, and it's three-barred Monty, I'm sorry, my brain like shut down for a minute. When we chose <laughs> that, three-barred Monty. When we chose to do that, it was we all wanted to do something that had the Shakespearean feel and we did do little skits from different Shakespeare shows and we sang songs and we, we made it like a true Shakespearean, like a mini Shakespearean festival with all sorts of different things. Um, there was definitely yeah. a specific audience for that. It was people who you know wanted to have a good time and wanted to have some fun and you know, but were, but we were Shakespeare fans, you know. It was yeah. we did have the normal theater goers, but we did have quite a few people that showed up in their Shakespeare T-shirts and dressed in costume, <laughs> and so it was almost like a mini, like Shakespearean con, so to speak. Cool. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I'm a little more um, a little more cynical about that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think yes, absolutely. People who come to see a Shakespeare play come to see a Shakespeare play, and yep. they are they are by and large uh, a, a much more um, uh, educated audience. I think okay. usually, but one of the drawbacks is that that they have kind of often made up their minds what good Shakespeare is.
5: That's true. Um, yeah. Okay.
2: And uh, and you sometimes have to fight that. I mean, I as I say, I ran a Shakespeare festival for five years. Mm. Uh, now it was a it was a very hip Shakespeare festival. It was in Berkeley, so it was okay. okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah. But, <laughs> but, but but people have an idea, and if you if you give them Shakespeare in modern dress, and that wasn't their idea, right? They're not going to like it.
5: I agree. <laughs> they, yeah. they are
2: sometimes going to Shakespeare because they like the sort of renaissance fair feeling of it
0: right
5: and
2: they want to see those those gorgeous costumes Mm -hmm. and they want to hear interesting music and they don't expect to understand it in fact if they don't understand a lot of it they think yes i've had the good shakespeare experience (laughs) because he's much more Stylish, and I, I'm not. It's like I go to opera, I don't understand what she's singing in that aria, but I know she's singing it wonderfully. So, right. a lot of uh, Shakespeare audiences sometimes have to be re educated away mm. from their preconceptions about Shakespeare. And I, I like to do Shakespeare when you get all kinds of audience, all Shakespeare lovers come, right. and then you give them an experience they didn't bargain for, <laughs> that they get grabbed by the gut or by the heart and and told to look at the humanity on the stage, not the costumes, not the music, not the elegant language, but the, either the tragedy or the romance or the sweep of history that they can understand because mm-hmm. it's human.
1: Mm-hmm. And
2: that's what I think the mirror up to nature is meant to be. It's not meant to be show you a lovely uh, display in a museum of what people acted like 400 years ago. I mean, essentially, it's got to say, this is a human story about people just like you. And even though they sound different, you will understand what the stakes are for them. So Shakespeare audiences are, in a, for me, in a constant state of re-education. And sometimes you lose people right. when you make make the Shakespeare too accessible, interestingly enough.
5: Dickon, can I there, ask you a question? do you oh. <laughs> do you Dakin, do you um like shakespeare that's done. have that's done with somebody else's idea in mind like it brings me to like new york did a, a performance of midsummer's where they based it in disco do you like when they take okay. it out of that or do you or do you frown upon that I, it's just a curiosity
2: question no i'm i'm comfortable with any um, reconceptualizing in terms of setting or costume, okay, yeah. period or anything like that. Yeah. As long as the play is clearer because of that.
5: Okay, that makes sense.
2: If if you but if you if you don't if you actually don't want to do Shakespeare's play, but you use his play as an excuse to do something else, that I'm not in favor of. Guys. Uh, yeah. But if if you're strong choices, you can make strong choices, and if they illuminate more than they obfuscate, then I'm all for it. Okay. I've worked in both modes. I've worked in pure Renaissance mode and I've worked in, you know, Dallas, Texas mode. <laughs> uh, I, I, I'm happy with both. But, but the test for me is always does the audience understand the play better than they would if you didn't do this? Got it. Right. And that's always the test for me. So we did a very sort of uh, period, kind of period. Uh, Henry IV parts 1 and 2 at Lincoln Center.
5: Yeah.
2: Uh, we were in, you know, proper proper uh, costume, proper music, proper fights. And uh, it was fine. And then I've done a very modern dress like Winter's Tale. Yeah. That's, that's a great one. It seemed one. to me that yeah. we made it, we made we made the points better than than if we had put it back in some period that is a fantasy period for Shakespeare. Fantasy periods are always difficult for me. Yeah. yeah, because they almost give the costume designer too much leeway, no yeah. and suddenly all you're looking at is the fantasy costumes, and you don't realize these aren't these are human beings.
0: Right, right, yeah. right.
3: That's interesting. So, Hillary, you have your hand up. Would you? Want oh, to
4: I, yeah. I just wanted to, uh, back to your original point. I think that something to point out is there is a large movement to modernize Shakespeare's language, mm-hmm. um, and I personally don't think that that's a good choice. I think <laughs> okay. that, um, dumbing down for lack of a better phrase, the language yeah. to suit an audience, um, is insulting both to the audience and to our author. Right. Mm-hmm. And to those of us who really care about telling the story as the writer intended.
3: Uh, mm-hmm.
4: but that is a large movement. Um, so that the, the stories of Shakespeare can be more accessible to audiences. Um, I think it's a mistake, but it is out there for people. So when you um, say
0: modernizing the language, like actually taking the words and, and making them modern English words, like that, that I yeah. hadn't heard that. That's crazy. Yeah. I hadn't heard that either. Oh, That's yeah. interesting. Interesting.
4: Yeah. I mean, it's, it still keeps most of the text intact. Right, but it definitely wordsmiths around language that may be considered challenging by some. Huh. Um, uh, again, that's something that I push back pretty hard on, and right. I think that I think it's a mistake for anyone to uh, use those texts for presenting a play, certainly for the first time, right, to someone who's hearing Shakespeare for the first time, and they may be hearing this sort of interpretation it's almost yeah. like they're translating yeah yeah you know? but it's like you're translating without the author's true intent yeah. um, the other the other point that I was since we got into talking about um, concept pieces um, I think Dakin's absolutely right like if if you're putting it in another time or another place to help the story be told in a new and in an illuminating way I think it's brilliant. And, mm. and our author's works are so universal that you really can do that. The Othello that I was in was set in the 1960s. Okay. So you had this like Vietnam War era. It wasn't mm. set in, Viet- in Vietnam. It was still sure. set, you know, uh, where in the Mediterranean. But it was conceptualized. So it was the 1960s. Right. And even though we were in the costumes of that time period and and – moving we weren't using uh, posturing um of the 16th century mm-hmm. the story worked yeah and i think that you could do it with you could set it in the middle east you could set it anywhere that there's a conquering uh army that has come in a conquering navy that has come in that story yeah. still works i saw the scottish play done in an insane asylum
0: Ooh, oh, wow. That would be
4: cool. Where, where Hecate is the head psychiatrist and the witches are the orderlies and they're pouring, yeah. you know, prescription medicine into their cauldron. Um, it, it, you know, it, it worked, I'd say about 85% of the Okay. okay. Yeah. You know, um, yeah. but it was like, oh, yeah. it took you a second. It's like, oh, well, yeah, those, those guys were crazy.
0: Yeah, for yeah. sure. Yeah.
4: <laughs> so, um, you know, it kind of allows you to look at them for the kind of psychopaths that they were. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, also, in so
2: terms of in terms of period, it helps to remember that Shakespeare's plays were in fact done almost exclusively in modern dress. Right. Yeah. right. They did not try, ex- with except for no. an accessory or two,
1: mm-hmm. to capture
2: the actual period the play mm-hmm. was set in. Absolutely. They couldn't afford to make that many costumes there right. yeah. a lot of their costumes were hand-me-downs from the nobles so they were they were in their own period most of the mm-hmm. costumes on the shakespearean stage if it was set in, if it was set in the all 1400s were still going to be state. 1600 costumes right. all yeah. the men and yeah. women so the idea of doing players. Shakespeare in modern dress is in fact not uh an innovation it's it's traditional so. yeah
0: exactly yeah. more authentic maybe <laughs> yeah Um, this kind of leads into our next question quite nicely, maybe. Uh, why do you think Shakespeare is so enduringly popular 400 years later? Like, what is it about Shakespeare that makes his plays so popular and so beloved even today?
2: Well, because they work. They're, 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 he, he reinvented perhaps only one story, one plot mm-hmm. mine
1: mm-hmm. in
2: his whole life. But he took really good stories and made them into great stories. Yeah. So the plays, I mean, the vast majority of the plays are so well plotted and so well constructed
1: mm.
2: that they just they're, they're theatrical machines and they just work really well on stage, especially the blend of, of comedy and, and seriousness and the blend of, of, of romance and sort of sarcasm in the plays. Mm. And they're so rich. The universe of the plays is so full of people. They're not narrow. Everyone yeah. is a wide world in many ways. And again, his language is still our language. It's still modern English. And there's just nobody who, who did the language better. So mm-hmm. the characters are really uh, uh, well-spoken and and complex. But the stories are gripping. They're, they're just terrific. Mm-hmm. The people I- like like good stories,
4: I agree yeah. with that a hundred percent. I also think, besides just the ge- absolute genius of our writer who created about ten thousand words, yeah, like <laughs> you know, so when we look at our modern dictionary, you can attribute about ten thousand of those words to William Shakespeare, right? Um, and also the the canon itself. I mean, he simply was prolific as a writer.
1: Mm. So
4: it's not like, you know, God bless Tennessee Williams and his handful (laughs) of plays, but uh, a tome, it is not. And and I think just by the sheer number of his plays and the brilliance contained in each one, and the, the emotional life that he gives these characters, the specificity and the the intricacies of their internal emotional life he Mm -hmm. lets people empathize and connect with characters that they may know from history Mm -hmm. right they may know Mm -hmm. from their colloquial history and now they get to be in the same room with them yeah Mm -hmm. and I think we all long for that you know to to, if I could be in the same room with King John and sure. and, and understand his insights um, to to deal with someone who's going through the loss of a parent and that does it make you feel suicidal and mm-hmm. and how it affects the rest of your family you know you don't have to have the uh, uh, the throne, you know as a as a you know as one of the stakes to understand what Hamlet was going through as a child who lost a parent, you know, it's, these are universal messages embedded in brilliant, rich tapestries of stories. And there's just nothing that has supplanted that.
0: Yeah. That that universality was something that I was just going to ask, like, but you said it right there, that there seems to be some kind of, um, even though the stories are, you know, in many cases, much older than 400 years, because Shakespeare was adapting stories that were already existing in his time. So these are old stories, but he finds these threads that seem to make them, um, in, you know, you don't, you don't have to be in that exact position to understand what the characters are going through. And that's something that um, not everybody was able to do reading, you know, other early modern playwrights and poets, they didn't do it to the same degree that Shakespeare was able to do, it seems. Yeah. Um, I,
4: I only think that the, the Greek masters uh, were as capable in that way. Mm-hmm. Like, like Oedipus was a story that the people in his audience already knew, mm-hmm. right? But how it was presented that the audiences got to see it from different perspectives over the course of time.
5: Yeah. You
4: know, it, 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 allowed for catharsis on a different level. And I think that Shakespeare followed the same, uh, process. Right. He allowed his audiences a new level to stories. You're right. That with which they were
5: already familiar. Yeah.
3: yeah. Jen, any thoughts you wanted to add in there?
5: Um, that's a good question. <laughs> um, <laughs> Shakespeare's one of those things that I, I think it's just, you know, reading the stories and and I and I've read more than I've been on stage with, but um it, it's those stories that just stand the test of time. I, I He just he got people. Like there's certain there's certain instances where I I would read a character, or I would you know, um, read a play, and it was just—it just hits you in a certain way. It it, it just mm. and it, it the 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 colorfulness of the characters and the people that are in the things. I, I think that transcends it. It that's why modern day we can do productions that you know is, that can change it up, but still. Have that true Shakespearean, you know, feeling come through, and and the text mm-hmm. come through, you know, genuinely.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I know. Uh, getting back to a point, Dakin made just a little uh, earlier was around like the structure of the plays themselves. I mean, it, I mean, Shakespeare really um, helped define that. I think for an English-speaking storytelling process, right? So, um, like Lindsay and I had just uh, a couple weeks earlier had done um, a look at The Merchant of Venice, and we were you know, we were really kind of blown away by how tightly integrated every single element of that play is. It, it, it reads like a modern, um, you know, screenplay for a really, you know, a really good screenplay. Um, but it's, it's just, it's, it kind of set the mold for the way the, the characters and the plots and the themes and all the elements of the story, uh, really combined. And I think that, uh, I think it, in a certain sense, it's almost, a uh, self-fulfilling in the sense that, uh, we looked to Shakespeare as the, this beacon of uh, storytelling. And then, of course, that perpetuates the cycle of us continuing to look back to him again and again. So um, exactly. it's really, it's, it's a good point. I mean, I think that It's also
2: fascinating that we had to rediscover that about Merchant of Venice, because mm-hmm. for many years, it was played without the fifth act. The yes, right. and that, that ending you know, is,
3: is very important. Audiences
2: yeah. didn't understand the structure of the play. It was too rich for them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so they thought the play was about Shylock. And therefore, when the tragedy of Shylock occurs, that's the end of the play. And of course, right. Shakespeare's onto something much larger. Not that the, 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 the fate of Shylock is small. It's gigantic. Mm-hmm. But Shakespeare's interest is in something even larger than that. And so he has kind of a rom-com. You think it's going to be a rom-com. Then it's going mm-hmm. to be a tragedy. And then there's this yeah. giant summing up. In the fifth yeah. act, about about marriage and about fidelity and about flexibility and mercy, and you kind of go, he was onto something much bigger than the audiences knew. But but for hundreds of years, or a couple hundred years anyway,
1: hmm.
2: unless you read the play, you didn't really know what it was about, right. and you yep. didn't really understand what what the brilliant structure was, because your your focus was too narrow. Yeah. You kept trying to open the lens for you and you kept wanting to focus down on what interested you at the time. Yeah.
3: Yeah. No, it's, 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 yeah, it's a good point for sure. Um, Our, our next question is uh, we'll, we'll just go uh, one by one here. Um, So what is your favorite Shakespearean role that you've played and why? And uh, a sub question to that, uh, is there one that you've never played, but you'd really love to play? Uh, Jen, why don't we start with you? Cause you've already, you've already told us your favorite, so. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) You can pick up from that. And and
5: I got to play it. So I I feel very lucky in that film. Who would I want to play? Mm, Wow. That's. You know, I probably would. I'd actually love to play Mercutio in Romeo and Juliet. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, He he is quite the character. And I love that character so much. So yeah, that, that would be it. That, that, that would. That would, that would solidify like, you know, someday I could say, yeah, you know, that was, that would, that would be the role.
3: Very cool. What about you, Hillary?
4: Well, I think if I was going to play Mercutio, it would have been about 25 years ago. (laughs) (laughs) So I think I've aged out, unfortunately. (laughs) Uh, But I agree. I think Mercutio and Horatio are two of the greatest roles in the canon. Yeah. Um,
5: Oh, uh, as a, as a
4: woman, um, in my middle age, I think my bucket list role is to play Gertrude in yeah. Hamlet. Oh,
1: perfect.
5: Um,
4: it is just simply that the range that she expresses, yeah, is just remarkable. Um, and then the greatest role that I've played, I will say, is Amelia in Othello. Um, yeah. it was a smaller mm. role. You know, I've played Mistress Ford in The Merry Wives. I mean, I've had much bigger roles. Mm there was something about her and people sometimes play her as a bod, you know, and I did not play her that way at all. Mm -hmm. Um, I played her as a much more serious person Mm -hmm. and a, and and a much more devout person. Um, And, and so following her arc and how much she loved Desdemona and how hard it was for her to turn on her husband Mm -hmm. and to go through that arc with her and the language. And the tightness of the scenes that the author gave us—it just, it was a remarkable experience. Very okay.
2: cool. Uh, that's a tough question. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't. I, I've been very for. I know. So uh, okay, I looked fifty when I was twenty-five. So there <laughs> were certain roles I was never going to play. Oh. And, and 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 I I had settled for that. I had, had I had made that accommodation. Yeah. Uh but other than that I think uh, I've played just about every role that I have wanted to play. I did make a bucket list when I was 65. Okay. So that was 15 years ago. <laughs> and uh God bless. Like 2 weeks after I made and I did, I had avoided making a bucket list
1: mm-hmm.
2: because I thought it was uh, I'm just superstitious, you know, yeah, so I, I bothered. Heard. But mm-hmm. uh, Two weeks after I made it, I got offered one of the roles on the bucket list.
0: Really?
2: Yeah. Which was which was uh, Big Daddy. Oh, very nice. (laughs) And then a month after that, I got offered another one, which was King Lear. So I'm a believer. Bucket list now. Prospero (laughs) is still on Prospero is still on my bucket list. Okay. Well, fingers crossed that'll
0: happen next, right? (laughs) Yeah, I think
2: that's going to happen next. I was supposed to play John of Gaunt. Okay. in Central Park this summer, but of course the yes, the coronavirus shut all that down. Yeah. Uh, my favorite role, I, I I guess, would have to be Falstaff, which I've played five times. Very
0: nice. Oh, oh yes. wow.
2: Um, or Bottom, which I've played yes. four times.
5: That is a <laughs> great, great role. <laughs> yeah,
2: but I also... You know, I have... Uh, there are two roles that are... For a character actor, they're like the the summit. And, uh, um, I mean, I've played Richard the third and I've played, uh, Macbeth. I've done some of the great big ones and Lear, Yeah, but, um, there are two character roles that are like the summit, I think, for character. And they are Leonato in much ado uh-huh. and, and Capulet in Romeo and Juliet. Ah, okay. they, I, I have, have
1: to, agree,
2: you have to have, I have everything to agree
4: with that. Uh, yeah. I played lady Capulet, uh, and yeah, the yeah, actor you, that played Capulet, you have to have it it's just a massive yeah.
2: undertaking
4: people don't realize it cuz it's a smaller role play, but it really you have to
2: be is. able to play complete straight complete yeah. mm-hmm. comedy and yeah. complete tragedy you yeah. have to play all of them <laughs> yes, and, otherwise. and and nobody's, and nobody's looking at you while you're doing it. <laughs> <laughs> that's <crazy. laughs> At least uh, one of my least favorite roles is Toby Belch. I think. I mean, oh, it, yes. it, oh yeah. Oh yeah. It can it can be a very thankless role, and I did my best with it.
1: Yeah.
2: And, uh, uh, but I it it's kind of an unrewarding role.
0: Yeah. Because there are
2: so many. Because that is such a perfect play yes. that you think, oh, the guy, the big fat character <laughs> comic, he's going to be. Everybody's going to look at him, and then you yeah, have to compete day, with, you know, Violet,
0: and yeah, Malvolio and, you know yes.
2: Malvolio yeah, and festy yeah. and it's just, you're just lost. Uh, Your big man gets lost in the shuffle, so.
4: Yeah. Wah-wah.
1: Yeah.
0: Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh, man. Regular listeners. Uh, to our podcast will know that we typically end our every one of our episodes with an ancient bickering segment where Aiden and i take sides on an issue related to the topic of the day um rather than go into like a huge debate we uh we thought we would just put the question out to you all um and take a minute to think about it if you have to but if you could ask shakespeare one question any question what would it be
3: Lindsay, why don't you actually go first? Because I've been trying to think of this and I have nothing. (laughs) So uh, did you have a question in mind?
0: Well, I I mean, I think one of the questions that I've always been curious about, um, and this comes from a modern scholarship point of view, everybody talks about the authorship question so much. There are so many questions about that that I would want to ask. You know, how did how are you able to write all these things that that later on people are going to think you weren't capable of writing them how did you know so much about the law and know so much about uh you know all of these areas that a a stratford young lad wouldn't know anything about it would be a question along those lines that would be something that i would want to to ask
4: because it was really ed to fear the earl of oxford (laughs) right there you go Mm, <laughs> the go. answer to that, I actually have spent a lot of time on the authorship question. I used yes. to not think it was very important mm. um, until I started performing the works, and then okay. you start to realize like nobody does Chekhov without learning about Chekhov, right? <laughs> yeah, you know. And so, I, I it became very clear to me that nobody writes Rosalind as a character and then lets his daughters remain illiterate, right? And and so the Stratfordian to me can't possibly be the author. Gotcha. Okay. All
3: right. Well, we might be calling you back for our uh, <laughs> our answer question. Yeah. Again, yeah. <laughs> do
4: that. That's that's now you're getting into my uh, really guilty pleasure and, and favorite co- topic. Fantastic. <laughs> oh, that's great. Uh, do,
3: do you have a do, do you have a question in mind though, Hilary? Which is there one that you would you would love to ask whoever the author is? Uh, yeah. If you have a question in mind.
4: Yeah, I think um, again it, it speaks again to the same point, which is the women in his mm-hmm. plays are so rich and dynamic, mm-hmm. and I just really wanted to get—I I would love to understand his relationships with women, how he really feels like that, you know, how he feels about how our societies have have structured gender roles and 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 what he would think about how modern society and the movement to sort of eliminate gender um, mm-hmm. how how he would feel about that.
0: Gotcha.
3: Hmm. Hmm. That'd be Great question. Yeah. Uh, what about you, Deacon? Do you have uh, something I would you
2: would ask him uh, two questions. Yeah. Uh, where is Love's Labor's one?
3: Yes. <laughs>
2: <Yeah>. <laughs> no. Very good. And, and then I ask, are there any more plays out there that we don't know about? Yeah. Where, did, where did you put them?
0: Yeah. Where are they hiding? Yes. Yeah.
3: Well, that's a good one. Yeah.
0: Because there are, and even now, like, there are production, or sorry, not productions, Um, uh, what's the word? Compilations, I guess, or, or, or books that have, they're yeah. adding publications, they're adding new plays. It's like, this is possibly Shakespeare, and we've got, you know, so many technological um uh, insights into the plays where you can look at the the language and say, well, this seems like it could be a Shakespearean play. Do we include it or not? Mm-hmm. And so we're we're discovering new plays or potential new plays all the time. It would be awesome to find out if there were, you know, how many yeah, more out are out there. Yeah. Well, even
3: just confirmation on like, did the you really write all know, yeah. of? Well, yeah, and, and his involvement and in, you know, there's a lot where they they guess that he uh, yeah. he was in he was collaborating with other authors and stuff. Just right. even getting clarification on that would be. Very nice to hear. So, yeah, uh, Jennifer, what about you? Did you would you have a question for the bard? If yeah, she could ask him one thing.
5: It's funny because I I texted Lindy earlier and I said give me give me some heads up on some of the questions and I've been thinking about this <laughs> and she texted it to me, but I, probably does he have a favorite of all his mm. writings was his sonnets his favorite was was his tragedies his comedies what which one really stood out as if you had to def- if he had to define himself what would be the one thing he did or one play he has done that would
0: define who william shakespeare was overall all right more things in heaven hmm.
1: and earth i think, sure. I think, that, we, that all, I think we
0: all i think we all like to look at like uh the tempest or something like that as being like autobiographical this was his swan song that kind of thing but it would be cool right. to find out what he actually thought was what it really his. was yeah 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 Well, that was great. Uh, we don't have any other questions that we wanted to ask you, but do you have any other final comments or uh, things that you wanted to say about uh, producing, acting, uh, performing Shakespeare, um, or your engagement with the plays before we sign off here?
2: No, I am pretty much spoke out. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's
4: just a joy. You know, it, it really is an absolute pleasure to... Read Shakespeare, perform mm-hmm. Shakespeare, talk about Shakespeare, immerse oneself in his writing. Um, you know the the complexity of the characters as an actor just fills me up, mm-hmm. and and so it just I I really would recommend to anyone who's ever thought about performing um, to to look at this because if you can do Shakespeare, if you can really find find the care your characters you can do anything it's it's the best teacher Shakespeare is <laughs> the absolute best teacher for an actor
5: oh i agree perfect
2: i have a question yeah. sure. who's sure. the best who, what current playwright now is most like shakespeare
0: oh <laughs> oh that's a really good question that's a one <laughs> Like cool.
5: the I don't of, have an answer. I mean, I, an answer
2: that. <laughs> I mean, for me, it's a sort of a toss-up between Tony Kushner and Tom Stoppard. But
5: okay. both
2: of them—I'd say had, Tom
5: Stoppard. I would agree with that. Have that very one.
2: high intellectual touch, but Stoppard's getting real. Well, he—I think he's finished now. I think he's announced mm-hmm. that he's sort of written his last play. But
5: okay, I think
4: uh, Kushner might be a right, might be a good choice because his writing is so epic.
2: Yeah, he yeah, big. I mean, yeah, you no, know, it's yeah. it's
4: you know yeah. I I happen to be a fan of David Mamet, but you can't compare the two. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, one is you know immediate direct action, quick mm-hmm. shot, quick, quick, quick. Yeah. Um, another is grand. He has a grandeur about him that's you know mm. that I don't even. I wonder if modern playwrights would even attempt because the uh, uh, ability to get funding <laughs> yeah,
2: <exactly. laughs> yeah, to put yeah. your show up uh, if I it's guess.
4: that big is not so yeah. easy.
2: Yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> mm-hmm.
5: I don't know. I'd really i I'd, I'd agree with Dakin with you on Stoppard, only because Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are Dead is one of my favorite shows. And <laughs> the fact that he based the show in Shakespearean Hamlet with two minor characters was brilliant in my eyes. I got to produce that show for the theater, and it was by far one of the most challenging, but one of the most excellent experiences I've had in theater ever. Wow. So I, I agree. I agree with Stoppard. I do like Mamet too. I mean, yeah. I, and I like some, I like some, you know, I, but I, modern, I don't know. That's really tough. <laughs> it I is hard. I think you can yeah.
4: find elements. You can find yeah. elements, right? Like you can, you can take yeah, a piece in different of, of Tennessee Williams and mix it mm-hmm. in with a piece of Stoppard and mix it in with a, piece, you know, the. Yeah. there are, yeah exemplars within, but I don't think that you can find one play right now that yeah. could do all of it.
0: Yeah, I agree. And that really makes the, the accomplishment of, of Shakespeare's, the collected works so much more stark in contrast to, you know, that, that we attribute this to one person. Maybe it wasn't, maybe it was a group of people or uh, somebody yeah. else, but, um, but it's, it's, it's so impressive when you think that, that. um, these 38 plays and, and this was all, you know, if we can't nail down one author today who matches that or who, yeah, it's, uh, it's. Well, even, even throughout.
3: Yeah. The canon generally, I mean, there's, I mean, Shakespeare is kind of above generally placed above everybody else as is anyways. And, uh, in the 400 years since there hasn't been a singular playwright that's really challenged that, um, and that's that's in itself just a, a crazy. accomplishment. Well,
2: there was one was who thought thing. he did, but that's <laughs> <laughs> who's that? Uh, uh, yes, yes, yes
3: yeah. of course. Yeah, yeah.
2: And I, I, if I were living in his period, I would say he was the one that came closest.
3: Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. At that time, yeah, that's fair.
4: Yeah, but similar to, I would think um, Leonardo da Vinci, mm. right? Yeah, like, yeah. There have been yeah. thousands of painters since, and yet what he was doing. For his time, and 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 when you start to look at all of his drawings and yes. just the scribbling notes that yeah. he took, he was <laughs> prolific in yeah. a level of genius beyond what uh, what anyone expects of any a single yeah. human being. Yeah, yeah, you know?
3: yeah, yeah well, that's true. So, so thank you again, uh, all three of you, for for joining us and agreeing to. To blab Shakespeare with us, uh, it's it's very appreciated. You're
5: welcome. Um, Absolutely. I'm humbled by I'm humbled by Hillary and Dayton because I'm just the little local girl. But thank you. <laughs> yeah, you say puck. You're not any kind of little local girl. That's right.
4: That's, that's <laughs> a good one to have under your belt. Come on now. Thank you.
0: You can find all our episodes on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcast fix.
3: If you want to tell us what you think of Shakespeare, his plays, poems, or any of the topics we discuss, we'd love to hear from you. You can contact us on Twitter, that's at BixPod,
0: On Facebook at Facebook.com slash TheBixPod. Or by email at TheBixPod at gmail.com. <laughs> that's our cue to exit.